A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. On this episode, I'm speaking with Tanya Spaulding, principal and a 20-year Shea Design veteran. People are very reticent to change. So you have to balance that you cannot keep everybody happy. At the same time, you have to look at what is the most successful way to reposition this. So it wasn't remodeling the country club. It was repositioning and reinventing the country club model. And interestingly enough, we were brought on board because we don't specialize in remodeling country clubs. There are a lot of architecture and interior design firms that do. We don't. We specialize in consumer. We specialize in hospitality. Before coming to Shea, Tanya started her career in marketing, advertising, and public relations, having worked for two Minneapolis-based firms, including Weber Shandwick and Martin Williams. Her focus has always been on consumer-based brands and businesses. Tanya is a member and frequent speaking contributor to local and national organizations, including the MCSA, the Minnesota Real Estate Journal, the AMA, and the Downtown Council. Shea has also been recognized through the business journal's Women to Watch. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Tanya, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. I always love to kick off the podcast with a little bit of upbringing history. So I want to start out by learning a bit more about your outspoken young self, as I understand it. Where did you grow up? And why do you think your communication skills maybe blossomed at an early age? Well, I did grow up in central Minnesota in actually a pretty small little town. And I was the youngest of four and I was a very atypical youngest child. I was a lot more confident and I think outspoken and curious. So I was just one of those kids that was always asking questions, was always offering my opinion to things, was bossing my my older brothers and sisters around a little bit. So I think it was just something that came very naturally for me, communicating to people, asking questions of people, getting to know people, those types of things. So I think it came very, very naturally to me at a very young age. What types of things did you find yourself naturally curious about? Was it like shapes or architecture? Does anything come to mind with with those things that stick out to you? You know, it was really a lot of everything. Um, I paid attention to details. I really paid attention to how people talked to each other, how they communicated. I paid attention to advertising, whether it be TV or magazine or newspaper. I read everything I could get my hands on uh, and asked a lot of questions and did a lot of, you know, I didn't have access that we do today to answer questions. So the the research and the digging I had to do took a little bit more brute strength, I think. You know, whether it was trees and flowers outside, um, asking questions of people that what type of species was this? What was that? It was really pretty all-encompassing curiosity. There wasn't one particular area that I was really drawn toward. I was more of a I think even at that age, I was young, more of a generalist, just really curious about everything. And you said that you tended to notice effective communication. And for you, was that like a slogan or a tagline in a print campaign or an advertisement that you would read? Or was it, was it even just like lines in a book or the way a story was written? How do you kind of package up this idea of effective communication, even when you were a young kid? Well, I was and am an avid reader. So I would do things like highlight sentences when someone put together a sentence really well or when someone communicated something really well. I really appreciated really effective communications or if someone said something that actually got my attention, I sort of put it in my memory bank. But it really probably began more with the written word more than anything, whether it be newspapers or books. If people did a really great job of getting a point across or doing it creatively, I paid attention to that. And I kind of absorbed all of that and put it in my brain. And I think that really 
affected how I communicated to people too. You know, they always say the more you read, the better communicator you are. So I think um, my avid reading and trying to get my hands on anything and everything was really a, probably a big factor early on. And so did you end up going to college with this quote unquote communication in your mind or did you head out to school with other passions at the time that you were pursuing instead? No, I actually did. So my mentality and my mindset, even uh, as a teenager was, I'm going to go to college to learn how to better communicate to people because my I always had this thought and I'm not exactly sure where it came from. I probably made it up, but I always had this thought that was sort of my mantra that if you can learn how to communicate with people, if you can learn how to write and you can learn how to speak, the type of business you go into, you don't have to decide that now. You almost have the world at your feet. If you're able to be an effective communicator, an effective sort of general business understanding of things. So I didn't go to college with a general focus of saying, I'm going to be X when I grow up. I did start in journalism only because, you know, as I mentioned, I had such a great appreciation for the written word and I wanted to emphasize that and and get it even stronger foundation. But I pretty quickly pivoted to more of a business and marketing focus as well, but still communications is always at the heart of it. Any English class I could get my hands on, any speech class I could get my hands on, any writing class. I loved the breadth and depth of things that were offered. And I sort of delved into as many of those things as I could. And you mentioned to me that you you met a lot of people in the Twin Cities area during this time and learning of opportunities, um, expanding your, at the time, kind of younger uh, network, focusing more on that business side of things. What did you learn through some of those conversations and connections when you were in school? The college I went to, the University of St. Thomas, actually had a lot of adjunct professors and a lot of guest speakers that came from the Twin Cities market. So in almost every class, regardless of what it was, I had the opportunity to meet people that were out there in the workforce. Um, so then it allowed me the opportunity to see, you know, these are types of things that I can do when I'm out of college. These are things I can start to focus on. And what did they do to get to where they were or what qualifications, you know, what boxes do I need to check to make sure that there aren't any limitations on doing what I want to do? So my philosophy was, you know, absorb all of this, get a focus on what I want to do and have a roadmap. Um, I'm a very kind of consciously focused person. Uh, and I very much into creating stepping stones, knowing that there is no predetermined path. There was no one thing I wanted to do in my future. I wanted to understand all of the opportunities and create a roadmap that was going to allow me to grow and prosper and have a lot of opportunities. So through the people that I met uh, and the guest speakers, I pretty quickly focused on kind of a public relations and marketing as a stepping stone and a starting point for me. And you actually ended up doing an internship for your time in college. Is that right? I did. Uh, one of the guest speakers worked for a firm, which is now called Weber Shandwick. And she was describing her day-to-day and the access to the businesses and the relationships and, and things that she was doing in her career and what the firm was doing overall. And I think I was a sophomore at that time. And I just decided that's where I wanted to work. So I did everything I could to set myself up to get an internship. And as a junior, uh, the beginning of my junior year, I was awarded an internship there. So it, it kind of became that first stepping stone for me, that first goal for me. I want to sprinkle in a little bit here about international travel and I suppose just travel in general. This is something that's going to come back up later in the podcast, but you were traveling at a young age, certainly in college internationally. And that has actually started to become a really big piece of the work that you've done. Certainly a lens that you look at the world through. Tell me about that time in college doing some travel Did that start to set a foundation for you for communicating and kind of gathering resources and gathering insights from different parts of the world? Absolutely. And I think your phrase of the lens that I use is very appropriate. You know, starting as a kid, having a a sibling that lived overseas gave me the opportunity to, even though growing up in a small town, gave me the opportunity to travel internationally at a very young age, which was unusual. I took that all the way through. So high school, doing stay-at-home programs with um, international families in other parts of Europe. In college, you know, it became a little bit more both for fun and recreation, but also for learning. So very early on, that curiosity that I had really was about the entire world. Uh, you know, knowing that there was so much out there and there were so many different cultures and things to learn from was something that I knew 
regardless of what I did, it was going to be a big part of my life and a big part of how my life was crafted and how I was crafted as a person. And it does very much dominate even to this day. Did you have a favorite visit when you were in college that sticks out as that was such an important trip for me or an important location? You know, I knew probably um, I spent more time in Europe. So like Germany and France and Austria. So I really, what was interesting to me is what I learned and there wasn't and probably still isn't a favorite. Um, I sort of absorb everything and love everything in a certain way. But what I really started to focus on and learn and found fascinating was how these countries are relatively small when you look at it in the lens of the of the U.S., and very close together, but how culturally different they were from all aspects of the world, from food, from drink, from architecture, just in how they lived their day-to-day lives. So I really, really absorbed a lot of that, even as you know, a teenager and early in my college years. Let's transition into a few of your earlier professional experiences. I've already talked about it a little bit here. Uh, it was alluded to when you got into this later in your college career, but Weber Shandwick was a place that you were working with for about three years, if I have my notes correct here. Tell us a little bit about what that firm was all about and the type of work that you were doing there. It was, in my opinion, probably the perfect first job out of college. Um, the people were incredible, but in, in more so, it was the whole diversity, I think, of what they did and who they worked with. So. And that's exactly what I wanted. They worked with every aspect of business from financial services to consumer products and everything in between. So I really had the opportunity to work with so many consumer-based brands that had a lot of different focuses. So it allowed me to move through and understand the companies themselves. And even though the role I was performing was more of a, a public relations consultant, if you will, Uh, And so it was very communication and advertising and marketing focused in terms of what their company's messages were. I really, I found it fascinating to learn about all of the business and industry that was out there, who they are, what they do, how they differentiate, um, how they grow. So even though playing a communications role, I really, really got into, I want to know what you do, why you do it, how you make money, what your future is. So I asked and was fascinated by a lot of the business and marketing questions that each of these companies and these businesses and these industries, they were all different. Yet There were some similarities. And I just, I found it fascinating to learn and absorb as much as I could about so many different companies. Mm. So after transitioning away from that role, where did you end up next? And was it similar work? Was it an evolution of the work that you had been doing at Weber Shandwick? It was definitely an evolution. So going from Weber Shandwick, which is more public relations communications focused, uh, my next stepping stone was a, com- a local advertising firm here in Minneapolis called Martin Williams. Um, they're an advertising firm, but they also had divisions in graphic design. They had a translation firm. They had a public relations arm. They had a lot of diverse communications arms as part of the advertising focus. So it really allowed me more of a stepping stone into the advertising world and more importantly, uh, really becoming an advocate and uh, a a consultant that helped in all aspects of communications. So um, I I was fascinated by the fact that companies would come and hire Martin Williams for a certain thing. However, we had the opportunity to then, to, to then say, here are your goals as a company. Here's the type of uh, package that we can put together. We can help you on the advertising side, but we can also help, you know, whether it's refreshing, repositioning your brand, um, if it's helping more in the marketing and communication side of it, um, if it's helping, uh, you know, more on public affairs or what have you. So it really became an opportunity to become a multifaceted communications consultant rather than just focused on more the communication side of things through public relations. And a note that I wrote down from our earlier conversations was you said we were figuring out how to use any tool in our tool belt. And that seems to be a perfect statement for the work that you're doing at Martin Williams and come in for one thing, but we may help you with five other things. Exactly. And that becomes being their business advocate as well. So I always viewed myself as a part of their resources and their tools to help them meet their goals. So it's really trying to understand, like I said, understanding who they are. I've never been a person where a client or a person would come to me and say, I need X. And then I simply give them X and I do a good job at it. But it was always more like, well, why do you need X? And what are you thinking? What do you want to achieve? And then helping them really create 
a more creative approach of how to get to where they needed to go. So um, and never just fulfill on that one request. It was understand where the request is coming from and what the end game was and helping create, you know, I think a little bit better of a whole platform and a foundation for them to get where they wanted to go and be successful in their business. So this next thought is a bit of a two-part question because in a sense, one is going to lead to the other. But did you find the work that you were doing there as something that's really coloring the future work that you do now at Shea? And speaking of Shea, how did you actually get introduced in the first place? I know that's a little bit of a leading question, but it's it's a pretty cool story. Yeah, it is kind of a fun story. So every aspect of the jobs that I've had in the past, they build upon each other and they color, I think, who I am today and what I'm doing today. So you know, Martin Williams and Weber Shandwick were very focused on a particular piece of business or a piece of offering that they provided. Um, even though they were multifaceted and in, in how they did it, you know, from going from advertising to public relations, there's really, you know, I, I started to think that there's a lot of other bigger opportunities out there. So how can you even be take this communications platform and do even more for companies and businesses? And interestingly enough, one of my clients at Martin Williams was a local software company that has a very much a national reach. And they were repositioning themselves and they were moving. They were taking their workforce and they were moving it into a more substantial building that was more branded for them, if you will. I was brought in as part of the communications team to help you know, the employees and go through the change management with the employees and then also communicate this pretty substantial move to their marketplace. And Interestingly enough, that's where I was first introduced to Shea because they were actually repositioning them and creating their new office environment, their new workplace. And in the meetings I was in with this team at Shea, I obviously had a base level understanding of architecture and interior design and certainly was familiar with Shea and a lot of the other locals in the market on more of an overall level. And in the meetings I was at, I found them asking the same questions I would ask a client. So it was not singularly focused on architecture and interior design. It was singularly focused on making the company more successful. So I thought, how interesting is it that the built environment of the brand is such a big part of the brand, yet at Martin Williams and Weber Shandwick, that whether it's a retail space or a hotel or a restaurant, or in this case, a workplace, I never had the opportunity to really take it beyond the two-dimensional communications level. There's a whole three-dimensional world out there that is part of a business and a brand to make it successful. And it really intrigued me that they had an approach that seemed to be very marketing and business-based for what I had come in thinking was a pretty singularly focused architectural kind of mission. So that's how I was first introduced. So a few years later, one of the contacts that you had was actually purchased by David Shea. And that actually struck up a little bit of a conversation and a, I guess an ongoing path in that direction of the Shea team. Tell us how that actually came to play out in real time. Yeah, that's exactly right. So David Shea was similar to what I just mentioned that I was fascinated with the approach. He was looking at an opportunity for his firm to do the exact same thing, to say, you know what? I don't want to be just interior design and architecture. I want to help them create a better business for themselves. And if that means having, again, going back to the tools in the tool belt, having more of those resources under one roof so we can actually strategically look and provide a greater service for them and greater success for them. So that led him down a path of saying, you know what, I want to get more into the two-dimensional side of it. So graphic design, more marketing-based focus things. And it's interesting because it's almost because architecture and interior design is so technical that having that technical background, it's almost easier to go two-dimensional because it's an easier thing to bring in. So he did indeed purchase a small graphic design firm and I knew the owner quite well. She was leading a firm that did a lot of consumer-based marketing and branding and graphics. And David Shea had made an agreement to purchase her. So, you know, this is maybe a few years later from that first introduction, if you will. And she called me and said, you know what, this is kind of a fun thing. And I immediately thought of you. The firm, Shay, is looking to, I think, have more of a an account management, marketing-based, business-based approach to their client relationships. Because traditionally, architecture and interior design firms are very project management focused. I have the project I do the project well, I keep it in budget, I deliver it on time. 
So that is the industry, you know, architecture, interior design industry, because they have to be. It's linear, it's timeline-based, and it's budget-based. Um, however, David Shea had that, you know, in spades from, from having a firm that was doing that for 20 years. But he said, we need to up our game. We need to be much more strategically focused. We need to not just deliver well and on time and on budget, but we need to see what else we can do to make them successful and make them more competitive. So he wanted more of a marketing and business approach to how he dealt with clients. And it was always what he did with clients, but he wanted the whole firm to really be focused on being that almost strategic business consultant rather than just a project management of fulfilling a project on time and on budget. And you eventually met and interviewed with David. And and what I wrote down from our earlier conversations is that you found that he had a very similar mentality to yours. He was never content. He always wanted to to better himself and, and better the firm, expand the reach, as you were discussing just then. And obviously there's a there's a piece here that's very relationship focused, believer in relationships, which for all of the successful guests we've had on the podcast, that seems to be such a common theme building relationships and building strong relationships. When you first went into Shay, I think you said that you interviewed with him. It took like 20 minutes total. It was kind of a rapid fire. He knew what he wanted, got in, got out, and you were brought on board. You accepted the position. I believe it was right around 99, 2000. Is that right? Yes, in 99. I think I had my 20-year anniversary last year. So you said it wasn't an easy, you know, it was exciting, but it wasn't easy at first, right? Why wasn't it just like this free-flowing kind of slide right into the role? Yeah, not easy is probably an understatement, but I was up for the challenge. So not that things were easy prior to this, but you know, you get to a certain point. I was still young. I was still in my mid to late 20s. And I was just looking for something challenging. And the reason it wasn't easy is basically exactly what I just said. So architecture and interior designers are very technically enabled. You have to be to go into that field. You have to know your trade well. You have to know what you're doing. There's a different personality, I think, than working with marketing and advertising people, which are a little bit more you know, creative, free-flowing, go-with-the-flow type of thing. Architects and interior designers are very detail-oriented, very focused. So all of a sudden, you know, I was brought in not having any of those basic trade skills had a knowledge of of a very quick study. So I did everything I could to immerse myself and understand what they did and how they did it. But the technical ability that they had, they had sort of a a skepticism looking at me coming into my role and, you know, the graphic design firm that David had purchased saying, why? You know, it's how is this going to make my job better? How is this going to make my job easier? So I think it was just very much trying to merge two very different types of people into an approach that everyone believed in. How do you get them to believe and how do you get them to understand what the opportunities we all have moving forward together? And it was um, several years of you can't just tell them to trust you. You have to show them. You have to show by example. You have to get in and get your hands dirty. You have to um, build relationships with the people there and show and build your own credibility with them so they don't think that you're just there to you know, make their job harder or to give them more to do or to take them off task from what they've always known. So it was very much an exercise that we all had to say, as a firm, where we are and where we're going is really exciting. And it's something no one else in the entire country was doing at that time. And it was novel. It was the opportunities were exciting and the the clients that heard us talk about what we were trying to do were you know, was so excited about having to work with us. And so there was, we always had to stay focused on where we wanted to be and get through the challenge of the day to day. It was almost, you know, you have to bring people on one by one, both the clients and the employees themselves. And there has to be a belief and an energy that the approach that you're doing, that we're all buying into it. Let's actually dig into that even deeper. And let's transition a bit into the challenges of having an integrated firm like Shea Design is. What do you find are the biggest struggles, kind of daily, weekly project struggles of being a firm that covers so many bases? And does it ever feel like 
you know, I think spinning plates comes to mind. Does it ever feel like you're spinning too many plates at once with so many kind of things happening at once? It certainly feels like you're spinning a lot of plates. I don't know that with my mindset and mentality and David's as well, I don't think we ever feel like there's too many. But the challenges are really that we have to, in our firm, we have to be not only deep, we have to have the breadth and depth of expertise to be able to deliver on that two-dimensional and three-dimensional seamlessly. We also have to do that for a lot of different industries. So we're not workplace specialists or retail specialists or hospitality specialists. We're specialists in all of those. So we have to know not only be the best at what we're doing and have all of those capabilities in-house from marketing and branding and conceptual development to full design, you know, from interior design to visual merchandising to full architecture, which is a lot. A lot of firms do one of those things. We're doing them all. And then we also have to be experts in every single industry that we're in, all consumer-based. So that's what they have in common. But challenges in workplace design are drastically different than challenges in hotel design or restaurant design. So we have to be as good in every industry and as smart or smarter than our clients in those industries. And then we also have to have all of those capabilities to be able to put together a full service solution that actually is effective. You know, one thing that I wrote down was that you, you've you said that you don't really work with clients on just one singular thing. You always want to understand the business, understand the brand, understand where they want to be, get a sense of their business strategy. And I think just from the few conversations we've had, just hearing how Shay approaches projects is very unique and that you do want to dig in and kind of like get your feet really wet, get your elbows dirty, get some skin in the game. Where do you think that comes from? And how do you think that has helped Shay grow over the years? Well, personally, where it comes from, I'm not entirely sure. You know, I think it's a nature and nurture combination of things. But, and there's a certain, I'm never content that I mentioned earlier. And David Che very much has very much that same mentality. Like, I was hungry for more. And that leads into an approach, um, as I, I think I mentioned when we first spoke, I don't view new clients as new business. I don't view clients as business. I view clients as relationships. I don't view them as projects. So, If someone comes in singularly focused on, hey, we're designing a 5,000 square foot XYZ, or we're developing a new hotel prototype, or I'm going to rename and rebrand my company, regardless of what it is, how small or how large, my focus is always the same. It's like, let's get to know each other. I'm not going to try to sell you on anything because I'm not selling anything. I'd want to know who you are, what you're doing, who your competitive set is. I want to know where you are, where you want to be in 5 to 10 years. Who are the people that are along for the ride? You know, What is your company made up of? Because one person never really is indicative of the entire foundation of who you're dealing with. So who are you? What do you want to be when you grow up? And what opportunities do you see out there? And it's not just asking a bunch of questions. It's offering a lot of ideas. Have you seen this? Have you been introduced to this company? Have you seen what these people have done? Have you been to these places? Have you... And that's again, you know, going full circle to one of your earlier questions, that's where the being well-traveled really, really comes into play. Because I'm out there in the world every day and internationally, nationally, every city, every, you know, and I'm absorbing as much as I possibly can, you know, four or five restaurants a night, always staying at a different hotel, looking at who's new and, and fresh in the retail environment, whether it's bricks and mortar or if it's online, paying attention to workplace design and what are people doing? And it's not trend focused. It's just watching who's doing what and who's doing it well. And that knowledge base becomes almost like this giant library. So when I'm talking to clients either new or clients that I've known for 20 years, I can offer that up. I can offer up a whole worldwide perspective and examples of things, both good and bad, that they haven't had the opportunity to see. So I'm almost their eyes and ears. And that allows, I think, a really good premise of trust and understanding that there's a lot we can bring to the table. There's a lot of opinions and ideas and a lot of questions. And we're doing it all in the effort to make them better at their business. Hey listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed, where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint 
which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com slash blueprint. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com slash blueprint. I read a book last year. It's called called The Go-Giver. And um, if, if anyone has some spare time, I definitely recommend picking it up. It's a book by Bob Berg and John Mann, but it has to do directly with what you just mentioned, Tanya, with regards to not really going into a sales meeting with this sales pitch mindset, but really just trying to understand the person, understand the business, offer up ideas and recommendations, and really not going into it with this hard selling mentality. And that actually makes me think about your sales pitch at Shea. Um, in these early client communications, you know, you mentioned they might be coming to you for X or maybe even Y, kind of X and Y, but you already thinking about A, B, C, D, and E. So how does it play out? And, and do you ever feel like you're pushing too hard to add services or add ideas? Or is it just like this natural thing that kind of comes out of communicating with one another? Never a hard sales pitch. I don't, I don't ever take a look at our new businesses sales pitches at all. Um, or even new business opportunities, you know, I sort of look at every person I meet, whether they're coming in here with, we want to interview you or see what you're about, or whether it's someone I just meet out there in the world. I like to describe who we are and what we do, keep it short and sweet, keep it very succinct. This is what we believe in, and we truly believe in it. And that's a great fit for a lot of clients and a lot of companies probably not for all. And I take a look at every person I meet and every opportunity we have is, you know, I, don't, I just don't want to sell for the sake of selling so we can do business together and we can get this thing started. I want it to be a good fit. And in order for a relationship to be successful and it, for it to be a good fit, it has to be a good fit. So you have to establish a rapport. There has to be a comfort level. You have to have mutual respect for each other and you have to believe in what the other person is saying. And that goes both ways. So if it's someone I meet or if it's a new business opportunity, so to speak, I want to believe in what they're doing as much as they want to believe in what I'm doing. And I'm a really instinctual person. So oftentimes you can establish whether there's a rapport and a foundation there pretty early on and never force fitting. You know, Sometimes if it just feels like where they're going or what they believe in, or it just doesn't seem to mesh. You know, in a lot of cases, we'll say, you know, I have some really good ideas of some good resources for you. It's never, no, we don't want to work with you, but I think this might be a better approach for you. So that's part of building relationships and building that word of mouth. And I think that building that referral network too is you understand what's best for them and what's best for you. And you come to that mutually. And being a good business steward and a good partner and a good advocate for both of those things, I think goes a long way in terms of building a trust level. So it's always in that natural, let's get to know each other sort of thing. I never go in with a, hey, this is what we can do for you ever. It's more of, as I said earlier, it's more of who is your business? What marketplace are you in? Who are you competing with? Where is your region? How national are you? Where do you, as I said earlier, what do you want to do in the next three to five years? Who do you want to be when you grow up? How do we see this industry changing? I find it fascinating. As I said early, um, my first job, I love the variety. I love the variety of, you know, within a three-hour period, perhaps I'm talking to someone who has 75 restaurants across the country and then pivoting very quickly and having someone come in and say, I want to develop a new concept and I have an idea and I don't know you know, what to do with this idea. I love that variety. So, And I love getting to know people and asking a lot of questions and offering up a lot of that, that worldwide knowledge. And then I think we mutually, if there's a good relationship base there, we mutually decide how we're going to work together. I really like that approach. And I think the approach of just getting to know someone, getting to to understand their business and, and not going in with the hard sales pitch makes a lot of sense. I'm sure that listeners want to get into this part of the podcast. I certainly do. Let's actually pivot into a few project examples, if you don't mind. Love to paint the picture for a few projects that actually align with all these things you're discussing. So not to put you on the spot, but is there a project or two that you could walk us through and kind of explain how these bits and pieces come together? You know, the first one that comes to mind, I think because it is a little bit more top of mind because it's it's recent, is 
country clubs. When you think of the United States, you think of country clubs and people conjure up an immediate mental image of what a country club is. And oftentimes it's a little outdated. And the reason I say it's outdated is because our consumer world right now is is so dynamic with so many bars and restaurants and hotels and co-working spaces and meeting spaces and fitness meets fun meets drinking meets happy hour. I mean, really, all of these things have merged and people want want the interaction and entertainment. So when you start thinking a country club, the traditional model comes to mind and you think something that's kind of outdated when you consider all of the other things you can be doing. So we had an opportunity to work with um, Interlock and Country Club, which is very well nationally known, one of the best golf courses in the country, great reputation, a lot of history and heritage there. So the reason I bring this one up is because the business challenge here was, I think, fascinating. In my first conversations and meetings with them, the challenge you have is you do have a legacy, you have a history, and you have a lot of members that maybe have been there for generations or their family has been there for generations that are there because of that legacy and history. However, they're aging and they're getting to the point where maybe they're not using the club as much as they need or as much as you need them to. And you've got a whole base of people, let's say under the age of 50, what do you do to introduce this country club to become part of their life and the next several generations? And with the current outdated country club model, that's impossible to do. So with Interlock, and we had the opportunity to actually reposition it, not only the club, but how people think of country clubs in general. And how do you pivot and how do you maintain that history, that heritage and that legacy, but pivot the business model to create a set of amenities and a set of spaces and a whole environment and experience that everyone will like glom onto and understand and want to be part of for the future. And in doing so, you have a lot of very difficult decisions because as I mentioned, you've got maybe an older population or a population that's known the brand for generations that don't like that and will never like that. And they don't want change, frankly. And people are very reticent to change. So you have to balance that you cannot keep everybody happy. At the same time, you have to look at what is the most successful way to reposition this. So it wasn't remodeling the country club. It was repositioning and reinventing the country club model. And interestingly enough, we were brought on board because we don't specialize in remodeling country clubs. There are a lot of architecture and interior design firms that do. We don't. We specialize in consumer. We specialize in hospitality. So that was the reason we were brought on board. It's because you know we're not competing with other country clubs. We're competing with the entire world and everybody in the entire world. And the results, and this is why it's more top of mind because the business results are coming in and that's what keeps us going every day and makes us so proud of what we do is taking a business and understanding that it was in a place of declining membership and declining food and beverage sales. And through a repositioning, almost seeing immediate results of of that declining membership now went to a waiting list. The declining food and beverage sales now went to more profitable. So helping them make money, helping them reposition themselves in the market, attract a whole new audience of people, bring back people that maybe had let their membership lapse, and then introduce themselves to just the next generations of things. When you see that level of business result come through, that's why we do what we do. We don't do what we do because we can take a really pretty picture of something and say, isn't this design great? We do what we do because we can point to that and say, you know what, that was a shift in business and something that they saw immediate success. That's what gets me excited to come in here every day. Yeah. And clearly that ties back into you're not coming in as the country club experts. You're coming in as hospitality market experts where you see all the restaurants, you see the new openings, you see what's happening. And so you can draw from all that inspiration and infuse that into this country club project almost coming in in a more objective way than if you were actually a country club specialist. It's really interesting to hear how that actually comes out and then you see the business results on the back end. Right. I think the the key to our success and the the key to being successful coming at the world from, you know, more of a design and branding and architectural point of view is you can't have blinders on and you can't get too comfortable and you can't apply the same solution for multiple clients. Uh, we approach every single opportunity and every client and every business completely fresh. There is no 
Shea look and feel, and there is no preconceived notion of we're going to apply what we've learned with others. Everyone is new and fresh for us. And we pride ourselves in all of our projects going head to head with each other and not seeing a similarity. Every business solution is different. Everything looks different because every client is different. Let's tap into maybe one more example of a project that stands out to you. That made a lot of sense with Interlochen. And I want to see if we can pivot into something that is obviously within your wheelhouse still, but different, yet still combines all of these different approaches and and resources that you bring to projects. Does anything, again, not to put you on the spot, (laughs) but is there another project that stands out to you? We had an opportunity, it was my very first client, maybe six months in to me joining Shay with Macy's, who at the time was Dayton Hudson and owned by Target. And they knew our reputation from being a good restaurant designer here in town. So they had one small restaurant as part of their whole network. They had been given the space, they had infrastructure there. So they owned the real estate. They wanted to take a crack at doing a, just a small restaurant, kind of insignificant in their whole giant world, right? Of Target, Dayton Hudson Corporation, who was, you know, obviously has merged and become Macy's today. But that one tiny little, like 2,000 square foot restaurant, developed a relationship with the company that I've been able to maintain for over 20 years. And it was it started very small and it built and grew into us completely repositioning and remodeling some of their flagship locations across the country, including Chicago State Street and the New York location as well, Herald Square, Union Square in San Francisco. Three significant large projects that we've worked on over the course of the last 20 years. We've created new prototypes for them, for coffee shops, for in-store environments too. As we all know, retail is a difficult place to navigate these days. And we're all learning as we go and trying to be creative as we go. So a lot of that has become a strategic partner with now Macy's to figure out ways to do that. How can we create more integrated experiences into the retail environment to get people in and to keep people there? And not just you're not just selling goods now, you're selling environments, you're selling an experience, you're selling services. We've done packaging of new gourmet food lines. We've renovated and remodeled and created new concepts for a lot of their food and beverage spaces. We've done pop-up shops, both on the retail and the food service side. We've developed new brands and concepts for them. It's really interesting because when I look, the reason I bring this up and it's not one specific project, as you said, and it kind of supports my mentality that they're not projects, they're long-term clients. But I could have easily given them a really pretty restaurant that did pretty well and that would have been it. But as opposed to that, it built into one of our biggest long-term clients in history. And it also, the offshoot of it became relationships and introductions with Nestle with Bloomingdale's, with Target, as Target sold off Dayton Hudson. So it also blossomed and was a springboard into working with all those other companies as well. And that is a testament to building a relationship because you can look at it as a project and you can do a really good job at that project. And they say, yeah, you did a great job. Or you can turn it into a 20-year client that has been an extremely successful case history for you. And I'm proud of the relationships and the successes that we've done. And like I said, retail is is a challenging place to be these days and it's going to continue to be. And I hope to continue to be a great consultant to them as navigating these waters and coming up with great new ideas of what's next. As we begin to wrap up, Tanya, I want to make sure we have some time to talk about this. There's this term that keeps coming up. I know it relates to the work that you're doing. So if you could help me define Resmercial and what it means to you, what it means to the work that you're doing. I think some of our listeners are probably trying to figure that out for themselves as well. Um, it's certainly a newer phrase to me. You're connected to this space. You're connected to Resmercial. What is it or where is it? Can you help explain that to me? Sure. And you know what? This is just one man's take on it. So, I, you know, it, it probably doesn't even come close to if you looked up the actual definition for it. But the way I look at it, and like I said earlier, the benefit we have in having our fingers in so many different businesses is it gives us a perspective of how everything is sort of merging. And what I mean by that is what I see it from my perspective is home environments are getting smaller and people are not spending as much time there. They're spending more and more time 
you know, out in the world. The kitchens are not as big. The spaces are not as big as they once were. The grand five to 10,000 square foot homes in the suburbs are not as popular as they were with, with earlier generations. So what that means is as home is getting smaller, the rest of the commercial market has to change and almost become your living room, your kitchen, your den, your workplace, your office. So I think consumers' expectations right now are there, everything is at their fingertips, whether it's online or whether it's when they go out. So it's having the services, having the food, being able to buy product, being able to work, have a meeting, grab a cup of coffee. I think people are seeing all of these things merge so closely together that and it becomes you know the interaction the entertainment that i think people used to get at home they used to entertain at home they used to you know spend a lot of time cooking in their kitchen things like that and now it's the interaction that you can get on the outside of it so i think everything is so blended these days if you go into a hotel lobby from what it was in the past to what it is now it has food service, it has workplace, it has entertainment aspects of it. Uh, if you go into a workplace or a co-work place, it has all those exact same things, right? So people are looking for a lot of the same things at their fingertips in a lot of the same places. So you know, workplaces are becoming more hospitality focused. Hospitality places are having to shift and provide more product and service and, and have more, you know, work focused as well. So it's, it's all kind of blending together. And I think at the heart of it, it's because residential and our home life has really evolved and changed so much that we've had to pivot and create these types of interactive and these um, entertainment spaces and these effective spaces in almost every walk of life. The other thing from a brand and a business perspective, I think the challenge that all of our clients have and the challenge that we give them as technology is a big part of that as well. And technology is getting more sophisticated all the time. But I think that the challenge that companies have today is you have to be consistent. So if you have an online presence and you have an actual physical presence, you have to be consistent. You have to look the same communicate the same, be the same. You can't advertise yourself to be something different than what they experience. So I think for helping our clients navigate, you know, whether you call it resmercial or whether you call it the blending of all of these different things, keeping them focused on who are you and making sure that that message is consistent in every, literally every point of contact from their website, from the entrance, from the experience that they have when they're there, whether it is virtual or actual physical. So I think it's a challenging thing for people to navigate from the business and brands that are out there on the forefront of this. What are you particularly excited about integrating into your projects in the next few years? Given what you just said, I imagine you probably have a few things rolling around in that brand of yours. If I was to have a sneaky suspicion. What is exciting to you when you look ahead? Well, we're navigating different things all the time. And we're navigating different things that the, the world is handing us all the time. And we're having to pivot. So what we know today can change on a dime. So what I get excited about is changing on a dime. So taking a look at how to, in all of these environments, I mentioned technology earlier. Technology is a funny thing. It's both needs to be 100% integrated into every space that we do, but it is also physical places are almost a relief from technology because people are so dialed in to their phones, to their computers all the time that when they're out in the world, you almost have to give them a relief from it so they can look up from their phone. But at the same time, you have to give them access to power to Wi-Fi, to virtual tools, no matter where they are, so they can work from wherever. And you know, as the world is going to more virtual and less face-to-face, -face, I think, that we're probably going to be seeing a lot more of in these next couple of years, it's how do you balance both of those things? How do you balance interaction and the sophistication of technology to be able to adapt to the virtual world? I think those are some of the things I'm really excited about. How do we create those spaces that have that perfect blend of the right resources, the right quality of experience, the right technology, and the right virtual aspect of it. At the same time, how do you continue to create collaboration and interaction and entertainment for people at the same time? So that's what I'm excited about. I'm excited about pivoting into this next phase of our lives and figuring out how that all is going to look and being on the forefront and being a thought leader for it. I'm not waiting to see what other people do, but I want to be out there. I want to be out there doing it and trying it and finding ways to be successful. Tanya, thank you so much for joining me today. One of my 
favorite questions to ask guests has to do with who else we should be paying attention to. So obviously you have some incredible experiences under your belt. You work with some amazing partners. You've done some great work. And I've loved hearing about that today. And you must have some things that we can look at ourselves, people that you look at, businesses that you look at, who out there is doing groundbreaking or inspiring work that we can poke our heads in and take a look at. What's interesting to me these days is wellness and fitness is so top of mind, I think, for everybody these days. What I am loving watching and being part of from a consumer point as as well is looking at wellness and fitness companies and how they are doing exactly what I just said, making the digital as engaging and interesting and then also encouraging an in-person experience that basically walks the line between personal interaction and digital experience. You know, companies like Nike and companies like Peloton and The Mirror uh, that are very much based on selling digitally, but also creating environments and spaces and experience that encourage people to interact as well. And embracing what people are looking for in the future. They came out, you know, like Nike came out with a lot of really interesting ways to purchase. They kind of are reinventing retail from that aspect and, and customizing it in a very unique way. And the reason I'm, I'm loving the fitness companies and what they're doing is they kind of saw what the future of fitness would be. You know, gyms are getting either more specialized and smaller or huge. And I think they're realizing the consumer has very personal tastes. And sometimes you want to be able to provide those tools to them wherever they feel comfortable utilizing them. So I'm fascinated by how they've merged that. They've looked forward to see what consumers are looking for in the future, not what they're looking for right now, because they've been around for a couple of years already, and how they went from being just selling online and doing Instagram ads to actually having stores and people and interaction and seeing success on that level. So that's fascinating to me. Tanya, thank you so much for joining me today. You've been a great guest. You've been a a great sport, letting us dive into your world for just a few minutes. There's only one more thing to do on this podcast, and that is to roll the red carpet out for you. Tell the rest of the world what you're up to and where they can find you and stalk you online. Hopefully it is stocking online because hopefully I'm on a plane somewhere or traveling somewhere. Our website is shaydesign.com and our Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn feed is simply Shay underscore Inc. So that's the easiest way to find us. And then from a personal perspective, the travels that I mentioned earlier, uh, seeing and absorbing and researching and staying in hotels and eating at restaurants, we've created a resource as part of our website. This is a little bit more of the frivolous part of it. It's called Everyday Champagne. And it can be found in shadesign.com under the travel section. But it's more the fun part of what we see and what we're recommending all around the world. And it's a way for me to share pictures and ideas and things and all of the things that we're absorbing there. So that's where you can find us. Love it. And for all the listeners out there, we will share these links in the show notes. Be sure to take a look, click over Everyday Champagne, as well as these other links. We'll make sure those are easily accessible. Tanya, once again, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity. Have a great day. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com slash Transforming Cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.